Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 13 this evening. Paul, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, uh, I want to remind you, he's, there's a couple of things that he's doing here. Paul is, is the master of getting more than one thing done at a time in his letters. Uh, the, the big picture of what Paul is doing here is he's defending his ministry. And so he's describing that ministry. He's describing what he's done. He's describing the effect of what he's done. Uh, he's admitting that it can be discouraging, but he insists that they do not lose heart. He's talked about uh, what it is that God is doing by means of their ministry and what the outcome is, and not only uh, given encouragement because of what God is doing now in the midst of His ministry and how God empowers that ministry, but He has pointed to the promise that's held out to Him. Not only a promise that will one day make everything right, but that promise as a basis for our security, our comfort, our joy, and our peace even now as we go about the work of the kingdom. That's what Paul is doing. So at times as we read, it sure sounds like Paul is, is speaking in terms of an us and them. We, the apostles, you, the church, and making a distinction. But that's, that's what he's doing in order to defend his ministry. At the same time, what Paul is doing is holding his ministry out as an example. And he's encouraging us in the ministry. He's saying, yes, there's suffering. I've suffered. We do uh, find ourselves losing heart, but there's no reason to lose heart. This is why we don't lose heart, and by implication, why you should not lose heart. And so these themes have been swirling through chapter 4, and he's going to come to the end of, of this argument in particular tonight. And as he does, he's going to transition away from the now, the suffering that is ours right now, and the, the reasons why we should not lose hope right now. And he's going to begin transitioning in the final verses of tonight's passage into the content of chapter 5, where he begins to look forward to the resurrection, what it means when we come to the end of all things, whether that is our death as a result of the, uh, the faithful ministry that we're engaged in, the suffering that, that leads even to death for some in history because of God's will, uh, and uh, or whether it is the return of Christ. This is what is held out before us and we should take hold of now. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to read the text. We'll walk through it tonight uh, with the few minutes that we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Paul. And we thank you that Paul has not only spoken the truth, which would have been sufficient in itself, but he has lived the things he is speaking. And he invites us to recognize how we too are living the things that he speaks. And so, Father, we thank you for the encouragement that's ours in the Word tonight. I pray that we would be a people for whom the suffering that comes with proclaiming the gospel would not be theoretical. That we would not have to strain to appreciate the value in Paul's encouragement here but that if it is your will, we would know this same suffering for the sake of Christ, and that as we suffer, we would know this same hope that is ours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Three points this evening, uh, each of them relatively brief. First, believing must lead to speaking. Believing must lead to speaking. Uh, I've never taught or preached through 2 Corinthians before, and so as I was preparing uh, for this evening, I think this may be the thing that struck me most. Paul's most beautiful language in the text is reserved for the end of our passage, in, in my opinion, this evening. But the truth that we see here. I think is astounding. Uh, And despite being raised in the church, it's not a connection that had ever been drawn for me that I can remember. He says in verses 13 and 14, since we have the same spirit of faith. Uh, Often when we read a line like that, we're thinking back in the text, the same as what? What has Paul said that is the same? But in this case, Paul is, is looking forward. It's the same spirit as the author of Psalm 116 who said, I believe, and so I spoke. Paul says, we also believe, not just as a verb, not the psalmist believed something, and we also believe something, but that what the psalmist believed, we believe, and the psalmist speaks because he believes, and therefore we speak because we believe. I believed, and so I spoke, he quotes, he says, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And so he's looking back to Psalm 116, and he's he's seeing the psalmist there. He stops the quote short, uh, quoting only, I believe, therefore I spoke. But if you go back to Psalm 116 and verse 10, the psalmist says, I believe, and therefore I spoke. And then the psalmist quotes himself, and he, he appeals to God because of his suffering. It's because he believes that he can say to God, I suffer because he knows that God hears him and he knows that God has ordained this suffering for a purpose and he knows that God will deliver him from this suffering ultimately. Paul, though he doesn't quote that that next line in the psalm, perhaps he, he doesn't quote it because he wants our focus on this connection between believing and speaking. Perhaps he doesn't quote it because he expects that his audience knows Psalm 116 and their minds will go to that next line that he does not quote. But Paul is not lifting this out of context. He's understanding the psalmist very well here. And he is saying the very same spirit that enables the psalmist to say, I believe, therefore I spoke, and to cry out about his suffering to God, we have the same spirit of faith. If we believe, we ought to be speaking. What do we believe? Specifically, Paul says in verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is what we know. This is what we believe. If we believe this, 
it's, it's not even, I, I, I think what struck me this week is it's not even, I don't think rightly referred to as an imperative. It's not if you believe you are commanded to speak. The way Paul is speaking here and, and the, the psalmist that he's quoting, it is not a, a voluntary obedience to a command so much as it is an impossibility to do otherwise. The psalmist believes that God delivers. Paul says, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him. It it ought to be nearly impossible. We have to positively, actively work to suppress and not speak. And that's, that's when bells went off for me. Because isn't that how it is? I I can only speak for myself. But I don't not speak because there is no opportunity. I find myself wrestling in the midst of opportunity and having to actively suppress myself out of fear. Paul says, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. This is, the natu- this, this is the natural order of things as God has ordained them, brothers and sisters. In the midst of suffering, we know the truth. And we don't, we don't just know it in our heads. We are those who have been raised from the dead with Jesus Christ. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We know the promises of God in a personal, intimate way. And the, the, what ought to be happening is, as Christ describes it in the Gospels, it's welling up out of us. When he talks about that living water that wells up out of us, it's, it's like a, a, a water underground, a well that's been tapped into, and the, the, the pressure underground forces the water up out of the well. It has to be forcibly capped in order to keep from just continually running out. This is how it ought to be for us. And I wonder, I wonder why it's not. I wonder if it's because we in this country for too long uh, have been used to, to being the cultural majority. It's felt for so long like everybody around us knows this message. Maybe it is that we, we don't actually really fully grasp the absolute life-changing, life-giving truth of the gospel. I don't, I don't mean we don't believe. I just mean that having, having heard a shallow gospel, we have believed it and been satisfied with just that. The knowledge that Christ is coming again, and when He does, I'll be delivered. The gospel is so much more than that, brothers and sisters, and we've, we've got to dive deeply into this good news of the gospel and keep diving and keep digging and keep reveling in it until it springs up out of us and, and no voluntary action of our own will suppress it. It's discipleship. And we've got to keep, as we'll see in a moment, looking not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, fixing our eyes 
on Jesus Christ. And as we do, he will become more and more beautiful to us, more and more glorious to us. And the truth of the salvation that has been given to us and the eternal relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the source of all life, will ultimately land on our hearts and our minds in such a way that we, we can't be shut up. That's what we're striving for, brothers and sisters, by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. That, in discipleship, is what we're moving towards Yes, discipleship should result in us putting sin to death and pursuing righteousness. That's true, and it's right, and it's good, but it's a flat, two-dimensional understanding of the Christian life. And ultimately, not the most important thing. The most important thing in our discipleship is that we are coming to know Jesus Christ more deeply and more intimately pursuing Jesus Christ even as He pursues us to the point that we finally are, are filled with Him in such a way that we simply can't stop thinking about it and talking about it. Believing, according to Paul here, inspired by the Spirit and quoting the Old Testament, believing must lead to speaking. Second this evening, we speak to bring glory to God. I love verse 15 and what Paul does here. Uh, it almost sounds like Paul's logic is broken down here, but, uh, but it hasn't. It's, it's, it's something that God is doing in the world that is, is so much bigger than we would have ever planned ourselves. So much more glorious than we could have ever imagined in our creative minds. He says, for it is all for your sake. What? What is all for your sake? The speaking, the speaking is all for your sake, and the suffering that comes with speaking is all for your sake, Corinthians, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I've said this before, I need to hear it often, and I will say it again tonight. The reason that God is doing this work in the world the way He is doing it, the reason he would, he would call us into the work, give us the great privilege of being the means by which this good news goes out to the world, is ultimately so that He will be glorified. And God in His wisdom is glorifying Himself by means of our salvation. It's not an either-or. It's not that God is either saving us and that's the most important thing or He's glorifying Himself and that's the most important thing or that He glorifies Himself by mistreating us, ignoring us. God is glorifying Himself by saving us so that on the one hand, Paul says, it is all for your sake. And then immediately, he says it's for God. Because what God intends for our good leads to His glory. We speak to bring glory to God. Now, on the one hand, and I'm, I'm, I note in my preparation all through chapter 4 that Paul's not critical of anybody else really. <laughs> and so in as much as I'm exhorting you and exhorting myself, we're drawing this from the text, but there's, there's both an encouragement here and a challenge. The encouragement is, are you kidding me? God, the creator of all things, the savior of the world, 
designed all of this so that, that we would get to be the means by which the good news goes out? We would get to be the means by which grace is extended to more and more people and increasing thanksgiving and therefore glory to God? We get to participate in this? Oh, what a joy. What a privilege. But I think we also have to recognize that inasmuch as we refuse, inasmuch as we suppress, inasmuch as we feel it welling up in us, because it is such tremendous news, and we say to ourselves, yeah, if that gets out, they're going to think I'm a complete nut. And at the very least, they're not going to find me pleasant to be around. And it's going to be awkward from now on. When we feel that, that urge to suppress the glory, to suppress the truth, the good news of the gospel, we are not just refusing to speak. We are refusing to speak and therefore refusing to be a part of that work that brings an increase of thanksgiving and therefore refusing to be a part of what God is doing in the world to bring glory to Himself. Because of the peace that's ours in this country and the freedom that we have in worship, we can stand in here and sit in here on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night and we can praise God and we can glorify Him and we are called to do that. It's right. But between now and next Sunday morning, God has not said that we're on vacation from bringing glory to Him. Uh, what He's called every one of us to in the world, everywhere that He's placed us, is to proclaim this good news, to speak because we believe. And in speaking, to extend grace to more and more people so that more and more thanksgiving is going up to God to glorify God. We speak in order to bring glory to God. We believe, and that belief must lead to speaking, and speaking brings glory to God. God uses it as He will, when He will, how He will, in order to glorify Himself. That brings us to our last section this evening. We do not lose heart. Paul opened this chapter by saying this. You may recall, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 4, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Yeah, this is part of how we know we're coming to the end of, of this argument in particular. Verse 16, he says, so we do not lose heart. Everything in between, the first and the second, are all the reasons Paul's giving us not to lose heart. And why would we lose heart? Because when we're obedient, we suffer. And so Paul has to say, don't lose heart. We do not lose heart. He admits, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We have not been abandoned. We are afflicted in every way, verse 8, but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We do not lose heart. We are being renewed day by day. Paul, by this point in his ministry, this is later in Paul's ministry, uh, we don't know what condition Paul is in physically. 
But based on what we know of Paul's story, it is likely that Paul is not a well man. Uh, That Paul probably has trouble standing up straight. He probably does not walk with a natural gait. We have very good reason to believe his eyesight is diminishing. And it's not just because he's getting old and, yeah, the body breaks down. Paul has been stoned and left for dead more than once. Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, and there may be in this moment in history no one who can say that more truthfully with more personal experience than Paul. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We have not been abandoned by God. We do not lose heart. And here is where Paul turns in 17 and 18 to the eternal perspective. This is so important. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Not to this body that's failing, but to the resurrection life that is ours right now and the resurrection of the body that will come on the last day. It's only because Paul is looking to the things that are unseen the things that are eternal, that he can refer to his own suffering as a light, momentary affliction. Nobody with an earthbound perspective would ever describe Paul's suffering as a light, momentary affliction. But in the face of eternity, it is indeed momentary. And this is, this is what we must do, brothers and sisters, We have held out before us an eternal perspective. Look at what Paul says again in verse 18. As we look, present tense, right now, right now we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Because of that eternal perspective, Paul says right now we don't lose heart. How do we do this? How do we go out into the world with a message that will bring suffering to us? And in the midst of taking that message to the world and suffering, not lose heart. We don't lose heart by keeping our eyes on Christ and on the promises of Christ held out to us the eternal promises of Christ, the the promises that are rooted in verse 14, the resurrection truth. We know that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Listen, another way to say what Paul's saying, only not nearly as beautifully as Paul says it, is we can't lose. They can stone us and leave us for dead. But we cannot lose. They can take our very lives, much less just decide that they're not going to be our friend anymore. We cannot lose. If we will believe and therefore speak, we cannot fail. There's a resurrection coming, and there is nothing that anyone in this world can do to stop it. 
And there's nothing that anyone in this world can do to rob us of it. We belong to Christ, and Christ has resurrected. And that is, as Paul says elsewhere, the first fruits. It is the guarantee of our own resurrection. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. It's done. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I, I can't do justice to this. It's, it's one of the loftiest phrases, and he's going he's to give us more lofty phrases in chapter 5 next week. I just want to point one thing out here briefly, and we'll be done for this evening. Verse 17 again, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's preparing See, the suffering that we experience when we take the gospel obediently to the world, that suffering is ordained by God for a purpose. A purpose that not only results finally in His glory, but a purpose that results in our preparation. Whether you played football or not in high school, and I'll be honest, I didn't. I played soccer and ran track, so... I'm going I'm to use this illustration as an outsider. But early in the fall semester, when the football team was doing two-a-days, that, that affliction that they suffered was preparing them, wasn't it? Equipping them, shaping them, forming them, and on a good football team, not just physically, not just with respect to the skills that they were practicing, but mentally in preparation for those difficult games, which, because of their preparation, on a good night, led to glory, didn't it? As they celebrated victory. The things that happen to us in this world because we are faithfully speaking, sharing the gospel with those who are in desperate need of it, are not a surprise to God. They are ordained by God and not ordained by God. It's not just that He knows. It's not even just that He planned. It's that He planned for a purpose. He's doing something in us, doing something for us, brothers and sisters. And if we're not sharing the gospel, then we we're missing out on these things. We're missing out on the opportunities to be prepared in this way for the eternal weight of glory that's held out to us. It's a, a tremendous promise, and we're, we're, we're going by the, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from our sins. We're going to get there one day. God is gracious and He's faithful. But between now and then, He's called us to a work. And by means of that work, He will glorify Himself and He will save us and He will prepare us for the last day. Let's pray.